Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of We Talk with Whitby. Today we are joined with Katie who is a UX designer for Toyota. Katie, why don't we go ahead and start with an introduction? Yeah, so I'm Katie. I graduated from TCU in Fort Worth in 2017, and I have been with Toyota for the last three and a half years. So since I graduated, I started off doing internal call center, so business-facing software design, and then I've moved over to Toyota app, so doing mobile design, and now I'm starting to kind of ease my way into some of the in-vehicle multimedia. So it's definitely a longer development process, but it's really exciting to kind of get your foot in the door working on some of the next generation vehicles. So what would you say UI UX is? Oh, okay. Those are great questions. So UX stands for user experience and UI stands for user interface. I think of the last maybe two or three years, those have the lines have kind of crossed a little bit because something that has good visual design may not work well, but something that has a weird micro interaction may require something that has a stronger visual element to it. But basically UX design is maximizing the efficiency and maximizing the user experience for technology products that we use today. And this user experience can actually kind of go beyond the interface. So when you think about your vehicle, you have a touchscreen that's in there, but you also have all these other controls that control things on the touchscreen. So volume controls, like should they be on the wheel or on the center console, things like AC, seat heaters, kind of seeing how all of that plays together to create one cohesive experience is how I would define UX. Cool. That's a different perspective, you know, thinking about cars and a different type of technology mm-hmm. with UI UX. That's very cool. So what specifically drew you to UI UX? Did you always know that that's what you wanted to do? Or was there some sort of experience or trigger that really pushed you towards it? Yeah. So, I mean, you look back 10, 15 years, it really wasn't a thing. Growing up, I wanted to be a dance teacher, you know, and I'd do something that's completely the opposite. But UX kind of first fell on my radar when I was about 15 or 16. And I was working at a restaurant and the systems that we were using to input orders and while we were talking on the phone with customers or our waiters or our bartenders trying to put things in quickly was really slowing everybody down. It was not designed in a very efficient way. And I was always frustrated because customers were frustrated. And one day I just kind of talked to my boss about it and she's like, oh, well, we can customize it and we can do things a little bit differently. So we kind of sat down and we just kind of flowed things out. We learned a little bit about the software and like how we could maximize it to all our use cases. And at the time I didn't realize I was doing UX design, but it I realized that technology is a very powerful tool in everyday life and how businesses function. So that's kind of how I stumbled upon UX, even though I didn't know it at the time. And fast forward a few years, I went to school to study graphic design and I wasn't really jiving with that. So I stumbled upon UX and that's kind of made me realize I was like, wow, that's kind of what I was doing, you know, before I knew it. So that's, that's how I kind of found it. That's a very unique way to kind of stumble upon a passion and just really get to be hands on from the start. I think that's really cool and not very common for people to be able to kind of explore a career like that. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about what designing for accessibility means? Absolutely. So designing for accessibility is, I think, something that gets really overlooked, but it's so easy. Designing for accessibility is important because you want to be 
inclusive to your entire user base. And you have to think about people that are not like yourself, people that have disabilities, people that might speak a different language. So that's one aspect of it. But something else that's incredibly important is that it's the law. America's with Disability Act actually requires that anything that involves any kind of e-commerce or any kind of transaction, that it adheres to certain ADA guidelines. So the biggest thing with accessibility, there's kind of four main areas. So you have one, which is the most common, colorblindness. Making sure that your hover states have some kind of physical visual indicator that doesn't just rely on color and making sure your contrast ratios are good, things like that. The second one is making sure that any kind of web portals or apps are screen reader compatible so that your images have correct alt tags. For anybody that remembers like really basic HTML, make sure your HTML forms have the proper labeling and you're not using placeholder text in exchange for a label. Small things like that. You can Google an article just like designing for accessibility. Tons of things will show up, which is really simple checklist. But once you kind of get the hang of it, it's super easy to remember And the third one would be keyboard navigation. So if somebody has like a physical disability and can't work a mouse, they need to be able to navigate your site using keyboards. And then additionally, apps oftentimes have like hardware extensions that people with physical disabilities. And the last one is language translation. When you translate something from English to another language, it can either get super, super long or the text can get really short. And you need to make sure that your designs look normal and you're not getting weird truncation. Truncation is when you get like the dot, dot, dot. And people outside the U.S. like really, really struggle with. So those are the four main areas. Again, you can Google it. There are tons of articles out there, but those are just things to kind of keep in mind as you're designing any kind of software or if you're developing any kind of software. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's one of the things that we very much will overlook at times when you're working on projects that there are a lot of different factors that we have to consider and make sure that we're being inclusive to everyone. And so what is designing for touch? This is more of a layout thing more so than accessibility, but it's making sure that things on the screen are within friendly reach. So the best example I can think of is your iPhone. You have your control center dock and if you're right-handed versus left-handed, the brightness and the volume are closer to where your thumb will naturally rest on the screen. Additionally, designing for touch is knowing like when you shouldn't use touch. So a laptop, for example, it's easier to control a computer with a mouse or with your keyboard than it is to like raise your hand up and touch things. There's a really good book It's literally called Designing for Touch, published by a company called An Event Apart. And it goes into some pretty heavy detail, but kind of read the headlines of each chapter and it'll tell you anything you need to know. But yeah, exciting little area. Yeah. Again, like I don't think I've ever really considered designing for touch and accessibility before. And I'm not necessarily UI UX. I'm more data Mm -hmm. science and just computer science. But I think it's really cool that, you know, there's a different perspective and that there's a lot of different things that go into creating a project that's inclusive for everyone and Mm -hmm. helps everyone get through a task. That's really cool. So back to kind of your work at Toyota, what would you say an average day looks like for you? That's a good question. I'm kind of an early bird. So at Toyota, our company offers really flexible scheduling as long as you're able to make meetings and things like that. But my alarm goes off at about 6.30. I wake up, do my whole morning routine, make a cup of coffee, and I just immediately kind of get to work. So those first few hours, I'm doing a lot of heads down, working in Figma, which is our primary design tool, working through some flows, some screens, whether it's wireframing or some of the, the nitty gritty high fidelity design. 
around 11.30, we have what's called a daily stand-up. Now, obviously, they're all virtual and nobody's physically standing up, but it's kind of just a touch base with your product team. So meeting with your product owner, Scrum Master, which is somebody that is there to like assist with agile development, QA engineers, Android engineers, iOS engineers, and then any kind of like back-end architects or business analysts. So we all kind of get together. We go through what we're working on and address any dependencies, issues, things like that. Usually after that, it's lunchtime. And then oftentimes, you know, I'll have a few meetings here and there. If there's anything I need to address with like somebody that's on another team or if I have questions on, you know, how the head unit works and how that impacts the way our app works. So I'll do those. And then, you know, later on in the afternoon, we have our UX team review where we sort of see what other people on other teams are working on and just give some feedback. Additionally, and coordinating user research. So a lot of times you want to get quick iterative feedback and we've kind of had to test with just people in our household or people, you know, on other teams internally. But pre-COVID, I would say that there's a good amount of user testing involved in day-to-day activities. So it's kind of in a nutshell what my day looks like. Very cool. It sounds like you have a pretty packed day and a lot of different things going on. So how would you say that, you know, with your day that it's changed with being remote now versus over a year ago when we were back in person? I think having the first few hours to really, really tackle some of my tasks to like satisfy certain user stories and user requirements, which I'm able to do that in the morning. I'm honestly able to do like almost 90% of what I need to do during those first few hours. But I don't think things have really changed that much for me just because, you know, working with teams, whether it's offshore development teams or teams in Japan, like the timing has always been a little clunky. I guess it's changed in terms of when I feel like I'm most productive, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yes, yes. I think that's the same for like me as a college student and trying to figure out what the best time is for me to do all my classes and do all my homework. Mm -hmm. It's been a really different experience to try to figure out that like maybe 2 a.m. is not the best time and maybe like a 10 a.m. is is better to get work done. But (laughs) yeah. So what would you say is a skill that is very underemphasized but very necessary for your role? I would say, and this is becoming a lot more prevalent, it had like a huge boom kind of early on when UX was first starting and then it started to fall back a little bit, which is user research. User research and user testing is really at the heart of what UX design is. It's something like every UX designer and every product owner should be well versed in and anybody in any kind of tech org can understand the wants and the needs of a user. And it's how we measure and improve on the experience as a product. And that can be done like so many different ways. You can use analytic tools to see if you're really into data science. That's one area of UX that I think might be a good fit and seeing things. How long does it take a user to go through a certain process? You can also do like surveys and focus groups, understand kind of like what features people are looking for and full-blown usability testing where you're actually bringing people in and you're testing with prototypes. This is so important because this is how companies get ahead. You can design something that looks really beautiful and like feels nice, but it has to function well. It's a highly valued skill, but I think it's often kind of swept to the side when people are just trying to like get products out really quickly. Gotcha. Very cool. What would you say is a technical skill that is very, very important? You know, learning new coding languages is on a yearly basis is something that's not uncommon, but I would say actually maybe agile development processes isn't super technical, but being aware of what agile development is and the different types of agile development, that'll help you a lot as you kind of start to navigate your career and anything technology related. But something that's highly technical, I'd say is maybe design ops, which is knowing how to componentize any kind of front end element. 
So it goes beyond buttons, but things that are used very frequently throughout apps or websites. You can't hard code everything mm-hmm. up front. Having like a UI library that you can always pull from. So if you want to change a button style or if you want to change a font, you only have to change it in one place. You don't have to go in and manually do that. So design ops and learning about design systems, I think is one area developers and designers should be very well versed in. Cool. So we're going to talk a little bit about some non-designers and what are some resources for a non-designer to get into UX? For me, I didn't read a lot of UX books, really. I learned almost everything I know by reading other people's portfolio, like the case studies that are on their portfolios. Kind of how I found those is I just Googled really good UX portfolios or inspiring UX portfolios, or I found some people on LinkedIn and I would you know, click on their website. And if it's a well-written case study, they start with the problem at hand. They talk about the features or the app or the program that they worked on. They talked about usability testing and then kind of like wireframing in the end result. Being able to read a lot of those and learn about the UX design process and the design thinking process is a really good way to kind of learn about that. UX is still pretty new. So like there's not a lot of schools who offer a major in UX. So a lot of it really is self-taught. But I will also say if you're wanting to like network and get to know people in the UX field, there's an organization in Dallas called Ladies That UX. They also have chapters all over the world. They're not having in-person meetups now, but they're having virtual meetups. And that could actually be good if you're wanting to look for a job outside of Dallas. You can go to any of the meetings across the nation to network and learn in that area. Very cool. So you said ladies that UX. Yes, ladies that UX. And then for people who are more interested in product management or product ownership, even if you're interested in like a technical product role, women in product, I don't think they have a DFW chapter, but they have one in Austin. And women in product is sponsored by Facebook. So it could be a good opportunity to network with people at some of the bigger FANG companies, Facebook, Apple, Google, Netflix. So those are good resources for networking. Thank you for sharing those. This is the first time that I've kind of been introduced to those. So I'll definitely check them out and see how I can get involved. Thank you. One of the last questions we like to ask is, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten? The best piece of advice is like, this is going to sound so cheesy, but your attitude determines your altitude. Again, super cheesy, but you always kind of just have to keep your head up, especially in times like these. When you have a positive attitude and you learn how to like communicate well with other people on your team, that can make a lot of the other areas in your life and in work a lot better. And the only reason I say that is sometimes things can be extremely stressful when you're working on product, especially when you have really tough deadlines. I mean, a lot of times there's so much miscommunication between design and development and executives and just keeping a positive attitude and outlook on everything definitely makes that workflow a lot easier. I agree. I think it's so important that if we don't go into something with a positive mindset and a positive attitude, it's going to be really hard to get through that and pursue that journey and succeed if you've already started off on a more negative mindset. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, you know, regardless of what stage in life you're in. Mm -hmm. So on top of that, our last question is what advice do you have for current college students looking to get into UI UX? 
I guess I would say like just advice to any college students in general, given the situation is just keep your head up. Now is such a hard time to be looking for employment and I resonate with you guys so much. Just keep your head up and have an end goal in mind. But one piece of advice for somebody that wants to get into UI UX is to really, really network. You know, when I was going through the job process, I had my website and I had analytics that I was looking at and I was applying to tons and tons of jobs and nobody was looking at my website. I knew my application was just falling through the cracks. It wasn't until like I really put myself out there and tried to touch base with people and get my foot in the door that I started getting calls and getting interviews. So network. <laughs> so thank you, Katie, so much for joining us today. I personally learned a lot in those resources that you shared with us. I'm super excited to kind of take some time on my own and explore them and see how I can get involved. But thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another segment of Campus Talk with Whitby. Today, we have one of our very own Arunima. So Arunima, can you introduce yourself to our listeners that might not have spoken to you before? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Anusha. So my name is Arunima. I am currently a senior in computer science, and I also started my master's in computer science through the Fast Track program this semester, which has been pretty cool. Congratulations on your Fast Track. Yeah, thank you. All right, so just to start off, You've mentioned before that you've had some UX experience with an internship. So can you kind of explain what that was like? Of course. So this past summer was my first internship with State Farm, where I worked as a front-end developer for their labs department. And my work was to develop a UI for an internal tool that the agents would use. And so I think it wasn't exactly traditionally what front-end developers would do because our job was closer to wireframing. So each week we would build a UI using React and then showcase it to our business partners who would then critique it, tell us how they wanted it, and then we would run back, make the changes, and then show it to them again the next week. I think that it would have been done better using UX UI tools like Figma or Adobe XD, etc. But since we were developers, we did use React and other development tools. For me, the work consisted of building those screens with my other interns and collecting a lot of feedback, not only from the business partners we were meant to showcase it to, but also from our team, which is the other developers on our team and adjacent teams and everybody that knew anything about the product we were building, which I guess models what my internship was very close to what I'd expect a UX internship to look like, because the focus of our application and our UI was to build something for the business partners. And so we constantly had to put ourselves in their shoes, what works for them, what they wanted. And sometimes in like a weird way, what they wanted broke kind of the flow that we as designers would expect, which is like, you know, something that makes the most logical sense to you might not work for them or they'd want it differently because that's how an application they've used and that's what makes sense to them and that's the most obvious flow to them. And so it really is a matter of like being able to understand and incorporate those aspects, which I think is different from traditional front end because Generally, a UX designer has like a wireframe ready to go for the developers to then build it. So in our case, we played both the developer and the UX designer, which was a very interesting mix. 
That's really cool. I think like you mentioned that you have to think about someone else's perspective and kind of how they want to do something and what makes more sense to them. I think that's really cool that, you know, we can't just have one mindset. You really have to think on a broader level and think about a larger population when you're creating these projects and like working on these large scale projects to make sure that we're being all inclusive and making sure that whatever we're creating is on a foundation that everyone can use and it's accessible to everyone. So I think that's really cool. So for this internship, can you share a little bit of the process of how you got this internship and what all you had to do? For sure. So the company I worked at was State Farm. And to those that might not know, State Farm actually has a very widespread presence at UCD. So they're a very accessible company if you wanted to ever reach out to them. They have an office over at Synergy and they have a very strong pipeline for UCD students to be able to go and work for them. So State Farm and Mac in my freshman year did a lot of events with Whitby. And this is before I was an officer or anything. And I went to a lot of those events, you know, curious freshman, I went to everything. And I managed to like speak to the recruiters at the time and talk to them a lot. And what that did was, I guess, built a relationship with them, which then, you know, when I went to an office tour, which was again through Whitby, when they saw me, they were like, you know, hey, Runima. And so it was really nice that I kind of had some kind of a connection with them. And I can't really say for sure if that did anything on their end in terms of hiring me as a candidate. But for me, when I went to the career fair and I met the same recruiters that were there now interviewing me and looking at my resume, it made me a lot less nervous. And I was able to talk to them more confidently, portray myself as a much better candidate than I would have otherwise with a person I didn't know, because just being like a bag of nerves and everything. So I think that is what helped me a lot, just building that confidence, because it's like you kind of have a face to the person on the other side of the table, you kind of know them. Mm -hmm. And I think that really helps in like a UTD setup where a lot of the Dallas companies have a very strong pipeline to them for students to just go straight into their companies. And as for the actual interview, that was a pretty interesting one, too, because we used HireVue, the service for the behavioral and technical. And then we had a second round, which was a whiteboard interview. Very cool. So for those of us that might not know, can you share what a whiteboard interview is? Yeah, of course. A whiteboard interview is where you are literally taking a marker and the interviewer is generally someone with some technical background. And what they'll do is they'll ask you this technical question, some kind of, you know, coding question, and you are expected to write the code on a whiteboard. And it can be either in a specific language like Java or Python, or it can be in pseudocode, which is like a way of writing out the steps to like how to do the problem. And so what this does and the reason whiteboard interviews are generally used is because you want to talk through every step that you do as you go through the whiteboard question. And so every time you write something, you're kind of talking out like, you know, what you're doing and telling the interviewer, this is why what I'm doing makes sense. And the reason whiteboard interviews are done is because you can't really like run your code. So, you know, a lot of times developers will run their code and find a problem, fix it. But on a whiteboard, you can't do that. You need to kind of think of the fixes beforehand as you write. And so I think that's pretty interesting. I think the big thing that, in my opinion, people miss out on is with whiteboard interviews, you want to be asking a lot of questions. And the more questions you ask, the more you're able to kind of show them that not only are you able to engage with them and you know what you're doing as you go through the question, but also that should you make a mistake, because we're all human, we all make mistakes, that the person then has an opportunity to correct you early on and you then have the chance to work on their feedback and then actually go ahead and solve the problem. 
Very cool. That seems like a very unique experience and a different way of interviewing. So showing off your skills, but also being able to learn something new. I think that's a really exciting opportunity for exploring your strengths and your weaknesses. And that sounds like something that's a really big challenge, but so important, you know, when you do work in large groups and working with other people, you have to be able to voice your thoughts and your understanding. So that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, of course. So we like to wrap up our interviews with this last question. What advice do you have for current students that are trying to, you know, get internships and kind of get through this semester? I guess my biggest advice would be that we're so close to the finish line with quarantine. At least in this area, there's a lot of news that we're all going to be going back in person for fall. And I don't know whether that means only in person or hybrid, but there is going to be some amount of in-person element that wasn't previously there for this past year. I know that a lot of us, at least me, I have the tendency to push everything to the side and say, okay, I'm just going to wait for like fall when I can do it in person. And I think that if you can try to utilize every opportunity that you have right now because of the online format, you can be in more than one place at once. You have like a meeting here, you are doing something else there. You're able to multitask a little bit more efficiently, I feel, in an online format, which means you're able to kind of get more opportunities to So I know that right now, and this is just my opinion, I don't know if to what extent it holds true, but I think that because everything's online, it is much easier to find opportunities on campus, club advertisements, social media, etc. And so I think if there's any time to be able to be involved in stuff, it would be now because you can, you know, if you miss a meeting, you can always find the recording, go watch that, learn about more things, different talks and events that people have. And, you know, people just generally tend to have more time now than they did in person when they kind of had a more busier schedule with their life and everything. So definitely don't let go of the opportunities you have now, given everything is online, for the sake of waiting to be in person. That would be the one thing I'd say. But at the same time, mental health is important. And I know that everyone's kind of reaching their limit right now. So I'd also say that, you know, if you need that break, you have to take that break for yourself and take some time for yourself. You know, give yourself like a day off, once a week or you know schoolwork's important everything you're doing is important but it's also equally important to take a break from all of that and just take some time to yourself so definitely don't miss out on that more so when you're online and you think to yourself oh I'm just sitting at home I'm not even doing anything like I don't need to take a break you you definitely do I totally agree with both. You know, this is like the best opportunity for us to really grow our network because everyone is kind of in the same boat. We're all virtual. So it's not like, you know, someone's not going to see that message and not respond. Everyone's actively looking for new people to connect with. So it's a great opportunity to keep connecting. And of course, mental health is just so, so important, especially now because it was different when we were in person because you were naturally getting a lot more involvement, a lot more engagement with the people around you and just being out, you know, fresh air even. And so now when everything is online, everything's on a computer, it can be so repetitive and so redundant in just what we're doing that we get very tired very fast. And it's so important to check in with yourself. So thank you so much for, you know, highlighting those two very important parts of our normal day right now and how important it is to make sure that we stay in touch with ourselves and keep asking ourselves how we're doing. So yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. I love the the different perspectives and learning new things about that interview process and just how there's so many different ways that we can go by the way that we reach out to people and the way that we do get to interview. So thank you so much for hopping on today and speaking to us about your experiences today. Yeah, thank you too. I feel like at the end, the advice I gave was both sides of a coin. So, (laughs) But it's so important, you know, we 
can't have the coin without both sides. That is so. true. And I completely agree with that. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you to everybody listening. Thank you to Whitby. And I hope everybody has a great week. I hope you guys come to our future events. And I hope everybody stays, you know, surviving and thriving. Yes, thank you so much. And keep a lookout for our future events. We've got a lot more great stuff planned and we'll see you later.